The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Regular listeners will know that last year's most visited exhibition anywhere in the world was Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Well, on this podcast, we focus on the Met's fashion extravaganza for this year, Camp Notes on Fashion. We'll talk to Valerie Steele, the director and chief curator of the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology, to get her take on the show. But first this week, to the latest exhibition at the British Museum. The largest exhibition of manga, Japanese comic books and graphic novels, ever staged outside Japan, is now open. It's a vast show which introduces us to manga's style and iconography, its origins in historic Japanese prints and theatre design, and its path from four-panel cartoons in newspapers to a global graphic novel and animation phenomenon. The lead curator of manga is Nicole Coolidge-Rousmanier, a curator at the British Museum and professor at the University of East Anglia. And she joins me now. Nicole, the definition that you give in the catalogue for the characters that form the word manga are pictures run riot and pictures unbound. Tell us something about that. Well, what's interesting is the characters, they're Chinese characters, and they came about, they started to be used, I think, Probably one of the earliest uses was by Santo Kyoden, um, who was a man about town in the Edo period, 18th century. He was a fashion designer. He was a um, ukiyo-e artist. He did incredible, wonderful things. But it ne- didn't mean what manga means today. It meant just really loose sketches. And so he used it. And then Hokusai famously used it for his sketchbook. Now, Hokusai, in his Yomihon, in his books of, of, of illustrated books and tales, actually approaches something that could be, it's not manga, but it could be said to be closer to what manga is, but his hokusai manga are not manga. And and so um, the picture, the, so the translation made by Tim Clark is Pictures Run Riot, which I think gets to the heart of it, but um, it literally means more loose, sketchy pictures. We've decided with this exhibition, because manga isn't used in the same way now as it was in the Edo period, we're using the phonetic, um, the katakana, manga, to express um, what we believe is um, the expression of manga today. So you, you talk about Hokusai there, and 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 what's interesting about the show is that you do go back into this sort of history of image making, which which has kind of brought us to where we are now. Um, why was it important to do that, and and how far back can you go? Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, and um, and thank you. Um, in Japan, in general, this doesn't happen. When you have manga shows, you have um, genga, these wonderful drawings. And they line them up or they're in-depth about one story and they have a lot of visuals, but they don't tend to embrace the history. And that's perhaps because it's problematic. A lot of people have different opinions. But you can see, and being in the British Museum, which has the largest Japanese um, print collection outside of Japan, um, really um, pretty impressive printed culture, not just woodblock prints, um, you can really see that formats persevere. And formats, and without the past formats, you wouldn't have the present. So we wouldn't have manga in the way that we have it today if we didn't have the past. And and visual storytelling in Japan, it depends on what you want to take it. But um, I mentioned this in the catalog. But I, my specialty is as an archaeologist is material culture and and three um, D objects. And you look at yayoi, so that's three hundred BC to three hundred AD. You look at these metal. Um, 
uh, dotaku, their metal uh, bells, and they have frames and they have images in them and they have storytelling. I mean, much like the Tring tiles, you know, and, you know, you you get that in England as well in the 14th century, 13th, 14th, 15th century. So that's not unusual to have frames and storytelling in that. In Japan, you have this very rich history of storytelling, but it only becomes manga much later. And we wanted to show this rich history a little bit, not too much, a little bit, but we also wanted to, and provocatively, we put three examples of ukiwe, um, a hokusai, a kuniyoshi, and a yoshitoshi, with contemporary manga, and one married with a kawanabe kyosai um, painting, and we did this because the contemporary artists are specifically looking back. So Otomo Katsuhiro, when I met him, you know, he's famous for his Akira, but he did many other things. He did Alice in Wonderland, and he did um, Sayonara Nippon, Goodbye Japan, and he said that he was influenced by that print, by Kuniyoshi. The British Museum has a fantastic collection of kuniyoshi, but not that print. So we had to borrow it from Scotland, but that's why we did it. So we're not in that section saying that it goes from ukiyo-e to manga. We're saying that contemporary artists look back in their past and draw from it and draw inspiration from it. One thing I just want to point out, though, that most people don't know is we have a yoshitoshi um, uh, it's called a hanshite, which is a, a underdrawing uh, for a woodblock print. And we've put that with um, Inoue Takehiko's Vagabond. And what's fascinating, and, and Tim Clark actually showed me this when we brought Urasawa Naoki um, a few years ago to the British Museum collections to look at. And the, he said, wow, this looks like manga. I could draw this. <laughs> and and there is something very graphic about it. These, these um, drawings were hand-drawn by the artists, and they would be pasted on the woodblock print and carved through. So they're normally destroyed. So they're not meant to ever be shown. But this one was never made, so we have it. What's interesting is if you look at the exact size of it, it's the exact size as a genga, as a Japanese drawing. And also, woodblock prints, and I hadn't realized this, I knew this with genga, but Japanese genga drawings for manga are are kind of shortened or cut to 81%. So they're trimmed. And it's exactly the same in woodblock prints to 81%. That's not random. There is a format that continues and manga takes the previous format. We're not talking about content, we're talking about the form. That's really interesting, isn't it? And I noticed also that you've taken great care in the show to introduce people to the kind of the grammar, the conventions, the formats that you encounter in in manga. And one of the kind of key aspects of this is that it is a very image-led kind of uh, uh, storytelling in the sense that in British or American comics, um, an onomatopoeic sound, for instance, will be written out and will say splat. But in manga, there is a whole language of visual terminology for this. Tell tell us more about that. Well, what's fascinating, I think, and I think this has a lot to do with Japanese. um, I mean, I could be being reductionist, I don't know, but Japan had a very rich language, um, a very rich onomatopoeic language before there was writing. And and so you have this whole rich language, and then you get writing introduced in the fifth century, and the writing, the Chinese writing, and through Korea and China, and for Buddhism and for state formation, you know, for state and documents, doesn't really fit the language. And so there's always this kind of, in Japanese you would say zure, you know, there's always this kind of mismatch between, between between that. So you have two phonetic systems, you have a character system, you have a number of different things. And in Japan, it's often what's not said, and then what's said. And same with the manga and the action, what's not shown as opposed to what's shown. And so I think all of this involves the imagination, specifically anamanapia, involves the imagination, the sound of something plopping in. But it's not just the sound, it's the way that the onomatopoeia is drawn on the pages. And that's why I really object to the translation of it. 
splat, I really had to <laughs> splat on, on the page instead of having the Japanese graphic there. We, we created this um, Professor Munakata's British Museum adventure book in 2011. It was done by Hoshino Yukinobu um, and serialized in big comic in Japanese. Then we translated and published it in British Museum Press. And we specifically left all the onomatopoeia in there in the original Japanese. And then we made a coded system in the back so that people could know what the sounds were, splat, and, and to know what the sounds were in Japanese. I think it's very much part of the culture. And I think it's what makes thing, makes their poetry so strong. And it also adds to why their pictures are so resonant. Tell us about when manga became the form that it is now, in the sense that there, I mean, it seems to me that there was this Yes, it existed in as far back, you know, 19th century, coming into the 20th century. But there's this really important moment in the post-war period uh, where uh, Japan is occupied by the US and and uh, American comic books come over and there's this sort of fusion of languages that happens. American comic books and European comic books, and a number of things actually had been coming over before the war. You know, so there was a, a build-up. It didn't just happen, boom, um, you know, at the war, you know, and that's why... Um, you know, George McMahon is building up father. You know, a number, a number of these were introduced. And in in fact, um, we have um, Shochan, uh, this really early comic that was based on Pip, Winfried and Squeak. You know, so so that was from the early 20th century. So you, so you have this tradition, but you're completely right, because what happens um, in right in the post-war period, really from, um, you know, the immediate occupation by the American forces in Japan, they bring in Disney. They bring in not just the comics. I think what's more important is the animation. And they and they bring in this and that. And for people who have been starved, who've been under censorship, they're still under censorship under the occupation, by the way, but <laughs> but different type. And and so I think people were really, um, it, it was pretty dire in, in that period. And I think that they were really in need of, of something. And, and this gave it to them and and really deeply influenced them. And no more so than Tezuka Osamu, you know, a, a young um, man um, studying to be a doctor at this point. And so in 1947, when he created his new treasure island, I mean, he was just was 17. And this is two years after the war. And it sold 400,000 copies, this, this, this work that we examine in the exhibition. And we put next to it, um, because Ryan Holmberg, a fantastic scholar at Tokyo University, um, has shown very carefully where he borrowed the imagery from, from, you know, Mickey Mouse, from Donald Duck. But and as Ryan Holborn says, um, we showed the comics, but it's really the animation he took it from. And what's more important than the actual imagery that he took is the way that the imagery starts to move. It's in an animated form. It fundamentally changes the way that the pictures are on the on the page, and this changes everything. So when we look at manga, are we looking at a different kind of storytelling across the panels to Western? I mean, yes, there's a reading from right to left, but you're saying that there's also a different kind of movement across those panels, which happens from Western comics. Yes, I, there definitely is a different movement. And I think it's influenced by Western comics and Western. Um, but but it's fundamentally there is a a, a, a Japanese um, style of reading that has come about from centuries of of looking at picture illustrated books you know whether there be you know woodblock print illustrated books or whether they be hand scrolls or whether they actually be hanging scrolls when you have priests going through for your religious practices etoki you know you have all of that and so people are, are they really know that in all different levels you know of class and, and and systems and japan was a very literate country um in the edo period but what's What's interesting is they're not just read from right to left, as you correctly point out. They're read diagonally. 
So you read upper right to bottom left, and you scan the page, and there's a timing I can't remember, but it's like it's it's incredible how quickly young people can read it, and you you open it up. So we're thinking one page, one page, but actually you shouldn't think that one should not think that way. I know you don't think that way, but you open it up, and it's you have two pages, and so you go from the upper right of one page to the bottom left of the other. So you're just scanning it down. And so it's the movement and the line. And that's why we are defining manga as really um, expression through line. It's the movement of the line that carries you with it. The text is is secondary. It's supplementary. It's important, but it's secondary to this movement. And one thing you really demonstrate in the show is just how broad the responses are, the forms of expression are within certain confines. What's amazing in Japan, and we couldn't really, we tried to hint at it at the exhibition. I mean, it's impossible to show. We only have a limited amount of space, and it is a large space, but but still, um, we can't overwhelm people. The, the number of genres and subgenres are mind-watering. But I, I find that actually with all of Japanese forms of art, yeah, my specialty in particular is ceramics, and, and it's incredible how many types of ceramics you can have. In, in, in the manga field, though, there is... I'm not exaggerating, a manga for any type of emotion, feeling, genre. So there really is this huge form of expression. So even if we're just talking about shoujo, um, women's, uh, girls, comics, you know, within that one form, there is a incomplete uh, tribes, <laughs> circles within that. And um, so it, it's it, it the further that you go, the more you see. It's interesting you mentioned shoujo because, again, this is something which is explored in depth in the show and and very particularly in the catalogue, is the nature of the readership of manga that's produced for women. So it originally produced for young girls and then and then for more adult readers, but actually very diverse readership across across the gender. So men will read uh, manga that is notionally produced for women, for instance. Exactly. And, and it really goes back to Japanese art history um, formats, because from the 12th century, and maybe even earlier, you have women's style and men's style. So you've always had that in Japan. That's, you know, the Japanese formats continue to be um, uh, continuous. Uh, in ceramics, you have, you know, 15 generations of potters, certainly in painting, you have 30 generations of painters. And so, so the male-female format is something that is entrenched in Japanese culture, but it doesn't mean that it's made by men or women, and it doesn't mean it's read by men or women. It's the style of the format. So shoujo style is um, tends to be more deep, intellectually deep. The lines are more delicate, not always, but often. Um, there tends to be, you know, you could early on in Tezuka, it might be romance or gender issues or something like that, but it, um, it now is much more deep with Hagiomoto. Um, it's it's incredible. Or even Takami Keiko, you get this science fiction, you get you get really persecution, you get these really very complicated tales that are told through this really dense and beautiful um, format. With shonen, um, boys, it's much more action-oriented. The actual line quality is different. And it's it's much more about kind of quick reading and building up and then letting down. I was intrigued that in shoujo, that was where homosexuality began to be explored in depth in, in manga, for instance. So this is an interesting idea, isn't it, that, that in manga for notionally produced for women, male homosexuality was being explored quite, quite broadly. Exactly, exactly. And even um, in, you know, it's hard to say someone like Tagami Gengoro, if he's shoujo or shonen, but he's probably more shoujo, um, you know, when he's talking about my brother's husband, when he's talking about, um, you know, really homophobia in society. 
and really deep, you know, very deep um, feelings in everyday life, you know, he takes that format to use it. I, I think that it, it it's interesting, you know, there are many aspects of shoujo which we um, explore in the catalogue um, more in depth, but it, it's fascinating to think, think that... Um, you know, a lot of early boys' love, you know, or, or shonenai. Shonenai doesn't actually equal boys' love. It's very complicated, these these categories, as you've already <laughs> brilliantly hinted to. But if you're looking at something about boy and boy, boy-on-boy boy relationships drawn by women for women, um, oftentimes in many of these scenes, you'll never see a woman. You know, it's it's it, they're male characters that are acting this out, and so what does that mean? And it, it's it's a little bit more um, it's it's a little bit more deep than one would think. But that's not always the case. For example, Hagiomoto, she has a whole range of characters in her. Um, that's not so much boys' love, but it's uh, yeah. The show sort of hints at, but can really, as you say, because because you're exploring so many different types of manga, you can only really hint at it. But there is a whole um, erotic area of manga, and it's been it's actually been something which has been quite explored culturally. Um, and it, again, it links back to a tradition, of course, of shunga. But how how much does it relate to that tradition? And and is there a sort of cultural anxiety about the kind of more extreme forms of manga? Well, it's really interesting. I- you're you're very smart to point that out, and there's um, a couple of different levels that I'd like to take this to. First of all, um, I'd like to start with the censorship issue, um, because in Japan, um, manga artists manga is a very democratic uh, medium, and um, in general, manga artists not all, but traditionally come tend to come from disenfranchised or at least not um, wealthy backgrounds. And uh, and it's something that manga you can draw on anything you know and and you you know and if you're good enough you 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 can get through so it it there are people that have have done this for a long time and and particularly I think Chiba Tetsuya um, they're very very fundamentally against censorship so they may not condone everything but they don't want the government to condemn it they've gone through the war they've gone through the censorship that's already happened in Japan and they know what censorship can mean. And the censorship under the American occupation. So I, I, you see a reaction to any forms of censorship. They would prefer to have self-regulation. And there is self-regulation for pornographic material in Japan. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, but there is. And there is a lot of pornographic material, but it's a very specific um, type. And um, some people think it's of the overall genre. Some professors have told me in Japan that it's probably about 20% of the uh, overall production. But interestingly, um, Ito Go, Professor Ito Go from Tokyo uh, Koge University, who's uh, a specialist, he draws manga, but he also is teaches manga artists. He said with um, the pornographic production in manga, which is a very separate son- subgenre, it doesn't, you know, it's it's very separate, sold separately, it's, you know, marked, it's, you know, there's, it, it's it's not, you know, just plonked on the shelf right next to um, although you may see people reading it in the subway, you know, you know, and you, woo. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the, he says that up to now, you know, in general, manga artists fifty percent are female. But he says the same is for pornography. So fifty percent doing pornography for men are are female. Right. So you know I, whether that's forty percent or you know who knows. But but the 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 point is it's not exactly what we think, and it's not exactly what is thought. We. We have in the catalog, um, we've asked a specialist who has done her first PhD in Shunga um, at Ritsumeikan University. So she's really the, one of the top specialists in this material to write on this and to, to look at the history and then go up to the present. We've done an excellent, Tim Clark did an excellent exhibition at the British Museum on Shunga on that 
on that uh, uh, phenomena with Andrew Gerstel and a very thick catalog about that. We've, we feel um, at the British Museum that you have to look at everything, and there's been a kind of almost a self-censorship in Japan among art historians that have excluded this material uh, from the art history, I'm not talking about from manga, from the art history, you know, specifically looking at Western reactions and then re- overreacting themselves. And it's beginning to change. Those attitudes, Tim's exhibition has a, had a seed change in Japan. And Ishigami-san, who did her PhD, was able to do that because of this seed change. So there is a shift in Japan. But as far as um, pornography in manga, it can be distressing. But I sometimes feel that there's an over... Um, a kind of an overly large interest <laughs> in it, particularly by, um, you know, white males, <laughs> you know, and that other people, you know, they want to see more of it. And, um, and when we're looking at the overall genres, it, it doesn't, it's not looming large. I mean, it's important, and it shouldn't be ignored. When we were doing the British Museum exhibition, we put in Boys Love, we put in Yaoi, we have that, and uh, we have, um, you know, Tagami Gengoro's uh, work, but we decided not to do anything that, um, we wanted the audience to be millennials, we want them to be younger people coming in, and if we had anything truly explicit, we would have had to have a blue room. And we didn't want to do self-censorship. When I presented that in Japan, um, the Japanese were really the specialists, which I, I presented four times. They really helped me shape the professionals and, and manga artists helped me shape this, helped us shape this catalog. They they said they really didn't want to see a blue room. They said, if we're going to show that explicit material, we need to show it in, con- you know, not segregated. And um, so we decided to show material that was very suggestive and material that really could show you where it was going, but um, didn't quite go there. The range of um, depictions of people in manga is really striking, I think. And one of the things, again, that you've pointed to is the depiction of minority uh, uh, communities, for instance, in Japan. But also the the way that human form is depicted is very varied. And I think perhaps people who have a, a sort of have preconceptions about manga might think that all the human forms are the same, wide-eyed, almost childlike depictions of the face, for instance. But you, it's clear that you want to really broaden out the way that the human form is, is depicted. Can you say something about that? And also about the about peoples, not just people. If you like. Yes, yes, of course. And then that's, you know, thank you for asking that. That's important. The wide eyes actually comes from Disney. And, um, you know, so that's a Disney thing that got incorporated in by Tezuka and then gets taken off, particularly for shoujo. Um, but traditionally in Japan, saying that expression is through your eyes. And so um, they in hand scrolls all the way through from 11th century onwards, you see eyes and you see a little, little nose, but you rarely see a mouth. So in Europe, it's often you sad, happy, you look at the the mouth. In Japan, you look at the eyes. So there is a focus on the eyes regardless, and that's just a traditional focus right there. But in Japan, um, you know, there is this idea of Japan uniqueness, or Japan is one's peoples, but, you know, Japanese know, and everyone else should know, that it's a multicultural nation. And if you do DNA tests, you can see that there's a whole wide range from Polynesia to Siberia of, of genetic populations in Japan. But the culture is very... So that's a genetic thing, but the culture has um, a homogeneity that I think is enhanced through television from everyone watching similar programs, you know, from, you know, there's uh, from an inclusiveness rather than an exclusiveness. So you can tend to see that. But even saying that, 
what is remarkable, and I don't think people fully realize the regionality in Japan. They, each region is so completely different. I really encourage people who want to learn about Japan, experience Japanese arts or Japanese manga, not to go to Tokyo. You know, I mean, you can go to Tokyo a little bit, but, you know, just get out of Tokyo, go to Fukuoka, you know, go to, you know, Hokkaido, go to Sapporo. But you go to these areas and you see Japan in a different way. So in this exhibition, what we wanted to do was we showed a little map of Japan. We couldn't quite get in Okinawa, but uh, sadly, but we did the Japanese archipelago and we showed where each artist was from because that actually has a big impact. Um, so Inoue Takehiko, and he's from Kagoshima. And that is very much in his DNA and in his, and in his expression. We have as our lead image, though, and I want to point this out. Um, it, she looks like a young girl. She's compelling long hair. But um, if you look at her, she's she's Japanese national. She would be considered a Japanese national today, but she's Ainu. Um, the Ainu is a, a indigenous group in the north. And um, at this point, they didn't identify as Japanese. It's about late 19th century from the fantastic manga called Golden Kamui. Kamui means deity in Ainu. It's the, the god of gold. And it's an adventure tale, but t taking place very much involving um, new frontiers in Japan and the Ainu. So looking at that manga, you can realize manga is dealing with this. Um, the Ainu community were only recently uh, formally recognized as indigenous peoples of Japan. Um, so this is an ongoing discussion and manga is helping lead it. Um, the you talk to lots of artists in the catalogue and you, you, as you say you've consulted lots of people in Japan and, and among them are artists and it was really intriguing to me that you asked them you know what do you think about manga being in the British Museum can you tell me something about their responses yes yes definitely I mean the British Museum stance is always to get back to the artists so oftentimes dealers or <laughs> editors or you know rights people don't want you to do that because you know not because they're evil or anything like that it's just they, they like to control the product which is completely understandable but um whenever possible, uh, it's just the ethos because what the British Museum is presenting is um, something that is, you know, it's not about the form, it's about the person that created that object and that, that what that reveals about the culture. So we tried very hard to get back to all of the artists. We didn't get every single one. We did a good job. We got to most. And we felt very strongly that, um, and I do this for, uh, for example, even with um, Kaizawa Toru when we ordered, we asked him to create an Ainu work on identity recently. We had to talk to him about it, and we didn't want to do much um, censorship of, of what he was doing. You know, asked him to create something along these lines in this shape and uh, a size so it could fit in the case. <laughs> but other than that, he was free, and it was in a way that we couldn't do that exactly with the artists. But when we go back to the artists, we said, um, what did they want to show with their work? And what was interesting, I'll give you one example, if this is all right, with um, Ishizuka Shinichi, he does Blue Giant Supreme, which is um, a jazz manga. It's amazing. And he is the most amazing drawer. He just, he sits there and he draws right in front of you. It's it's breathtaking and they're beautiful and it's amazing you, you really feel the sort of connection between the human and the instrument don't you so you have a saxophonist and there are these sort of lines going off which indicate the sort of sound that's emerging from it but also the the movement of the of the person that's playing the instrument it, it, you got it it's exactly like that it's exactly like that and and we um we're looking at him I happened to be lucky and go in um, when he was actually with his editor and discussing his next segment at, at Shogakan. And he was doing what is called Neimu, which is um, the storyboards. And we saw him sketching the storyboards and he said, oh, you should put this in the exhibition. 
and we did. <laughs> you know, so you know, so so you can kind of see the rough, rough, rough sketches that he's just doing the storyboards, and then we have the finished product, and then we have the printed product. So you you kind of see this, but we, each artist was different. Each artist wanted to show us a little bit different. Pampanya was one of my um, latest crushes, and and he does his figures in pencil, and he told us that he it, well, he, he and his editor told us he does it in pencil and he does um, with the G pen and with these other uh, with um, more ink he does the backgrounds but he has to do them separately he can't do them together so he takes the figures and he plops them into the backgrounds and then that's the final and he said why don't you try and show it in your exhibition see what we're doing and, and voila <laughs> it's there <laughs> so ultimately what what's the goal of this exhibition you say that you know you want to reach out to a sort of millennial uh, fan base, if you and like, Gen Z. <laughs> and Gen Z. But I think also um, it, it it does seem to me that pretty much anybody could come and because you give this, you know, the, the, the first part of the show is very introductory and does give you a kind of guide as to how to read this stuff. It seems to me that a lot of people from right across the generations really could discover quite a lot. Well, this is um, a lot thanks to our director Hartwig Fisher, who really challenged us to, uh, to do two things. First of all, he said, "Why manga?" and um, he said, "Think of that. You know, don't." get too close to your subject you take a look at it and look at it in the round so we tried to do that throughout but also he said don't alienate the British Museum fan base you know and but but while attracting I mean our, our point is to bring um, to make the British Museum relevant to younger people so that we can show what's going on but I think for anyone especially older people and what's interesting even today the first day I saw a lot of um, I think they must have been in the 70s and 80s some people coming in because they wanted to know what their grandchildren are looking at and <laughs> and I think what's really interesting is that manga young people will know this certainly Generation Z will know this but it, manga is vastly becoming an international language it's morphing you know using you know over here but people are using it in an Instagrammable world you know everything's becoming more visual and manga is perfectly suited for telling stories and and delivering content uh, through that form so it's only going to get more prevalent and it's only going to get more more range and so everyone should really learn this it's like emojis you need you know which are Japanese which are picture um, you know characters you you need to understand manga so what we did in this exhibition is we gave we cut it up into six zones the first zone is reading writing and producing manga so that's your um grade school <laughs> you know your your basic manga 101 and then our second zone is history and formats and then we have our bookshop so you get the retro experience of holding paper in your hands and then downloading on your on your mobile phones if you choose to do so through QR codes but by the end of the first two zones that's kind of your like your college it's it's like an open university course you become fluent in manga and then after the first two zones then you're kind of free to roam our other zones are on genres manga and society beyond manga and then looking at the artwork itself and our fantastic 17 meter theater curtain so that's the exhibition in a nutshell this exhibition really i don't believe will happen again it, it was a lot of work and a lot of uh, a learning curve for japan and for us but it was uh the artist a lot of the work is in the british museum for the first time this has not left uh uh and one one can i just give one example for example we have um, we have a, a, a manga artist in the in the 30s going to Epstein Studio at the Royal Academy and doing a manga reportage on uh, Genesis before it's actually presented, and we show that. And these kind of things are just not known about. It's worth seeing. So um, till the 26th of August. Nicole, thank you so much for telling us about it. Well, thank you for having me.
Manga is at the British Museum in London until the 26th of August, and its exemplary catalogue is published by Thames and Hudson, priced $29.95 in the UK and $39.95 in the US. We'll be back talking camp after this. The talent assembled by Serge Diaghilev at the Ballet Russe is a roll call of early 20th century artistic genius. Stravinsky, Picasso, Nijinsky, Goncharova and Massine, just some of the names that earned the company its enduring reputation as a cultural hothouse. Among the costume designers was Sergei Sudeikin, and a selection of his designs for the Ballet Russe production of The Sleeping Beauty will be offered at Bonham's Russian sale in London next month. As Bonham's head of Russian art, Daria Kristova, explains, quote, Sudeikin's beautiful drawings are works of art in their own right, and alongside them we're staging an exhibition of costumes from one of the Ballet Russe's signature works, The Firebird, in the New Bond Street sale room from the 28th of May to 5th of June. These are from the collection of Ivor and Olga Mazur, and include costumes for both the original 1910 production and for the 1926 revival. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the exhibition Camp Notes on Fashion opened with much fanfare at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York's Costume Institute earlier this month. With more than 250 objects dating from the court of Louis XIV to the present, it explores the manifestations of camp in popular culture, particularly as it's reflected in fashion. The show takes the late writer Susan Sontag's notes on camp as a departure point. Sontag wrote... Quote, camp is a vision of the world in terms of style, but a particular kind of style. It is the love of the exaggerated, the off, of things being what they're not. She added, camp sees everything in quotation marks. In fact, Sontar provides 58 different definitions of the term. Our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, discussed the Met show with Valerie Steele, the director and chief curator of the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology, or FIT. She began by asking Valerie what, given Sontag's 58 definitions, camp means to her, or is the concept completely amorphous? Well, the concept is certainly complicated. And as Sontag implied, camp involves more of an attitude, a way of viewing the world. It's not so much something which is actually embedded in the objects themselves. So it's not that, say, a a Tiffany lamp or a 1920s sequin frock is ipso facto camp. It's that it has been viewed, particularly by some gay men in some periods, as being camp. That is, exaggerated, verging on bad taste, so bad it's good. I mean, there are many, many layers to the meaning of camp. Throughout its history, camp has also had a strong association with queer culture. Uh, The Met Show invokes Oscar Wilde's affinity for camp, for example, and cross-dressers in the Victorian period. At FIT, you organized a show titled A Queer History of Fashion, From the Closet to the Catwalk. How did camp play into your presentation? We did have certain camp objects in A Queer History of Fashion. For example, we had a Liberace pink velvet cape with rhinestones. And we had uh, a RuPaul drag outfit with a red corset, etc. We had Jean-Paul Gaultier pink sailor suit and a wonderful Gianni Versace glittering woman's suit with images of Marilyn Monroe and James Dean on it. So all of those were camp. But um, we wanted to make it very clear in the exhibition that there was no one queer style, that in fact uh, LGBTQ people have developed a variety of different styles, and that camp is only one element in that. 
The Met Show depicts the court of Louis XIV at Versailles as being an epicenter of camp. The king's younger brother, Philippe, for example, known as Monsieur, was fond of cross-dressing. It even traces the word camp back to that era when sucampe meant to flaunt or to posture. Have you delved into this period in your own research? Yes, and I, I do believe that in the 18th century, there were definitely camp subcultures, such as the Mali and Macaroni subcultures in 1700s London. But I do not think that the court of Louis XIV was a center of camp. I think that it's only been seen that way in retrospect by some gay men. And so this is it's kind of looking back on it, it seems camp. But I think there was, for example, utterly no irony in the, what was going on at the court of Louis XIV. That was a deeply repressive, authoritarian, very highly religious culture, a very different even than the uh, endangered but free-spirited macaroni culture and Mali culture in London. So we're seeing it through 21st century eyes that way. Or through 20th century eyes anyway, yes. And I think that the whole idea of Sicampe, it's that I had problems with their their definition and the way that even the way they translated that, they exaggerated it, you know, sort of a, a, a drama king, for example. Really, they were saying a king of the theater. And I mean, Sicampe really, the literal meaning was just to, to pick up your camp tents and maybe, in the sense, to plant yourself in front of someone. So, okay, there might be some faint connection, but very, very faint. And the fact that in modern French there is no word for camp um, makes it, again, a little bit more difficult to, to say that there's a direct connection between this 17th century French term. After sections exploring the meaning and history of camp, the show culminates in a two-story display of stacked vitrines of dummies of haute couture costumes. Did you find the inclusion of any of the costumes intriguing or surprising in any way? Is there anything you felt that they left out? Well, I felt that the first part of the show, where they were trying to give an argument about camp in different periods, one could argue with aspects of it. Like, I think it was 18th century, not 17th century. Um, but I do think you can find clear elements of camp by Oscar Wilde's period. I found that part very intriguing and interesting and grappling more with ideas, Sontag's ideas. By the end, it was kind of, in a way, everything but the kitchen sink thrown together and a million different definitions of camp being read in a somewhat irritating way through the uh, loudspeaker system. Nevertheless, for all the wonderful array of outfits, I felt that that last room shared some of the same problems as the previous Costume Institute show on punk. That is to say, it was all about the manifestations of a style in contemporary high fashion and not within the subculture from which it originated. So, for example, conspicuous, conspicuously missing were any things worn by black or Latino uh, queer denizens of queer culture. The role of black and Latino gay men in the development of camp as a style is really crucial, and that was kind of missing from that big room. Also missing some of the outrageous things like divine, like where was what divine wore in pink flamingos, for example. Um, I think there could have been more of those kinds of aspects of 
the way clothes were used and viewed within genuinely camp queer culture rather than its appropriation by the hyper-sophisticated and somewhat inauthentic uh, aspects of modern fashion. So that, I think, was missing. And it would have been cool to have more of, uh, more of the sort of Joan Crawford imagery, sort of why this kind of thing becomes so important an element. There were many fabulous things to look at. And I loved the show. I, I enjoyed it, in fact, much more than I thought I would. Uh, I disagreed with elements of it, and I thought there were certainly lots of things missing from it. But I think that for those who are interested in the history of LGBTQ culture, it was nevertheless a, a really interesting and significant show. At the press briefing for the show, the curator, Andrew Bolton, suggested that camp tends to come to the fore at times of social and political instability or when society is, is deeply polarized, for example, in the 60s and the 80s, and certainly today. Do you see that reflected in today's fashion world? Are we currently living in a camp moment? Well, I noticed that Andrew said that, that uh, camp keeps coming back at these deeply polarized moments, but he doesn't actually provide any evidence to support that. And many other theorists of camp have suggested that, in fact, as... LGBTQ people have achieved more social and economic rights. In fact, camp has diminished in significance, that it was really a product of a very closeted, in some respects, world in 1950s, early 60s, and it became less important later. Uh, it could be played with, certainly, by designers like Gautier, but it was no longer such a clear way of viewing the world. Um, I don't see it as being associated with uh, particular fraught moments politically or economically. I think this is the kind of question that journalists always ask this sort of thing. You know, why is it, is it relevant now? And it's very easy to say, oh, it's relevant now because. But I remember when I did my gothic show, people said, well, is this a gothic moment? And I'm like, well, you know, you had it under the Clinton administration when the economy was booming, you have a thing when the economy is down. It has more to do with elements in the culture itself, for example, trends in music, trends in fashion, trends in pop culture, rather than in big political economic movements. That's what you see in the return of elements of this. So perhaps there's been more kind of discussion of, of previous elements of gay culture, previous decades in gay culture, and that then has an influence on gay designers who are looking at that and being inspired to create new looks. I think that's far more likely than, than some visceral reaction to the horror of the Trump years. The exhibition also seems to suggest that camp began with the invention of the contraposto pose in Greek sculpture, with one hip thrust out and the elbow cocked. Isn't that a quintessential fashion pose? And uh, what does it signify for you? Well, again, this the idea that uh, camp began with the contraposto pose is an example of projecting backwards in time. This was never seen by the Greeks as being remotely camp, to put it mildly, and it's only much later that it's seen that way, uh, in part because camp developed out of a particular kind of gay culture. So I have problems with this kind of, it looks like and therefore it's connected. We've seen that often in fashion shows. And 
I think it's more important to try and track what are the actual connections historically rather than what are things that look similar, which in fact may have completely different meanings. Uh, days before the show opened, the Met held its annual Costume Institute Gala, where celebrities like Lady Gaga and Celine Dion ascended the Met's front steps in completely over-the-top costumes. We interviewed people who camped out on the sidewalk in the hope of catching sight of the stars and what they were wearing. As a scholar, how do you dissect the costume gala ritual? Well, I think the fact is that people like to see celebrities, and they like to see celebrities dressing up. The Oscars have become too uh, styled, and so there's no more of the bad taste that used to make the Oscars such a funny production. But now for the Costume Institute party, everybody is encouraged to dress to theme, whether or not they understand that theme, and they often don't, and their stylists don't. So it becomes one of those hilarious things that we see so seldom now at the real Oscars. So it's, it's doubly fun. It's celebrities, and it's kind of celebrities looking ridiculous. Sometimes fabulous, but on that edge where fabulousness and ridiculousness meet, kind of a perfect camp edge. You're currently organizing your own exhibition scheduled for the fall, Paris, Capital of Fashion. Does the show advance an argument in particular? Yes, the show attempts to explain how and why Paris became and continues to be regarded as the international capital of fashion. Even in a globalized world where there are multiple fashion capitals, Paris is still seen as the most glamorous and competitive. So the show tries to explain historically why. And there are many layers to that, but it's partly from precedence. It was the first one in Western Europe to be labeled as the fashion capital. And then also the rise of the haute couture, the connection between the court and the city, um, and the more recently, the fact that big luxury conglomerates are based in Paris. All those together have helped build a, a consistent aura of fashionness and high fashion around the whole city of Paris. So Paris is branded, in a way, as fashion city, in a way that no other city is. So I'm interested not only in the real historical aspects, but also in the cultural construction of Paris as the capital of fashion and what that, what that means. What does it mean to be a capital, to be the center of power? Well, thank you, Valerie. Thank you. Camp Notes on Fashion is at the Costume Institute at the Met in New York until the 8th of September. And that's all for this week. You can read more about everything in today's podcast at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe to our daily newsletter for all the latest news. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And if you're enjoying it, please give us a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing. Thanks to Nicole, to Nancy and Valerie, and thank you for listening. Listeners who made it to the end of last week's podcast might remember that I mentioned that we discussed the Guggenheim's exhibition Artistic Licence this week. Well, you'll have to wait for the next podcast, but it will be worth it. We've got interviews with Nancy Spector of the Guggenheim and the artist Paul Chan. So join us next Friday. Bye for now.
The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.